Dear Essentialists, welcome again to this Essentialism podcast. Thank you for listening. Not every episode on this podcast is the same. Some episodes are essential interventions where I get the privilege to work with individuals one-on-one in listening to their unique situation and how essentialism can apply to them. And because that which is most personal is most universal, I've heard from many, many of you about how relevant those episodes are to you. And so in the future, there will be more of those episodes to come. And in fact, if you would like to be considered for such an intervention or coaching session, please email me at essentialism.com. Occasionally, an episode will be what we could brand an essential conversation. In other words, it's about an issue in the world that's so relevant right now, it's essential. Even while we aren't talking directly about the practices of essentialism, this is such an episode. It's with the president of the NAACP, Derek Johnson. Here he is leading an organization whose purpose is to empower and advance African-Americans. And in the current climate, one can only imagine the increased pressure on him and requests for his time. So it's a privilege to be able to speak with him today. As you will see, it doesn't take long before we get to the red hot center of the issues, the essence of the subjects at hand. Because the ability to talk respectfully, compassionately, but truthfully together is vitally important, perhaps more so now than at any time in a generation. I hope you enjoy this episode. And again, thank you for listening. Welcome, everybody, to the Essentialism Podcast. I am here with the one and only President Derek Johnson, uh, the president of the NAACP, a man who is on a mission at a time that is, uh, goes without saying, is especially timely. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, could you just back up and tell us what matters most to you in your leadership at the NAACP and why? Equal protection of the law is afforded to all citizens, particularly African-Americans, so that we can be a part of making this nation what it should be, to perfect democracy, to ensure that our elderly are provided for, our young people have a bright future potential, and those who are disadvantaged, their rights are protected. Uh, We can have a healthy community and we can help build a healthy society if there is complete inclusion. You see there being a clear ideal. Uh, it's, it's a quality. Everybody gets to be at the table. It's nobody is left behind that we believe in the one brotherhood of man. This is, this is the ideal that you are fighting for. Absolutely. You know, if you think about this nation, we should guarantee every citizen a basic floor for human dignity. There is no reason why we should have hunger in this country. There is no reason why we are suffocating the potential of individuals. There is no reason that we allow law enforcement agencies to become predators in our communities or we we are warehousing people under a mass incarceration theory. 
And but most importantly, there is no reason why we are seeing the level of economic uh, uh, pressure so many families are confronted with, black and white. Tell me this. So let's let's just state a kind of obvious thing here for a second. So so I'm I'm white. You're African American. Can we talk about that? What is it you want me to understand? You know, and I, and I've spent time with my with my wife, with our children, worked hard to have racial literacy in our home over years, but still over the last few months, you, you can't be a be a part of our current society and not re-examine those subjects and make sure that we're upping the standard uh, in our home about becoming more literate about what's going on. And, and so I just wanted you just, you know, just laying out there, what is it you would want from me, uh, from, from our family you know, to, to be better and to do better? No, a couple of things. If you would, in our situation as a community, what would you want from us? Start there. That's an empathy question. You know. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the question and conversation about race has long been the elephant in the rooms. Okay, nobody really touches it. Nobody talk about it. In many cases, people try to walk around it as if it don't exist. When in fact, we all know it exists. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we stop allowing the the huge invisible elephant really impede our ability to function as a society equally? And then finally, with young people, you know, it, there are two things that's powerful. One, images. Images uh, have this impact. We have to force the images of uh, of who we are as a community and and, and what's possible in society to shift. But also how we are training our young people to have more compassion and understanding their obligation and responsibility. Some of the worst things I've hear white people say is, well, that's not me, I'm not like them, that's that prior generation. As if that was a starting and stopping point of structural and systemic racism. It's not what you have done in the past. It's what exists today. That if I go to certain neighborhoods that I am pulled over and I'm addressed differently than if you go. And if we go together, then I may get a pass. Then again, I may not. I mean, there are so many things that's the elephant in the room that we must address. And I don't know if we have enough time on the podcast to really unpack it all. Mm. But it really is what would you like to see done if the roles were reversed? One of the things you said that I, I so, um, I, I had a, another guest on the podcast, uh, Dr. Helen Williams, and we did get into some of these uh, deeper elephant in the room issues. And, and one of the things that is so clear to me is that in my generation, we were really taught be colorblind. Don't see it. Don't talk about it. Well, it wasn't even don't talk about it. It's just don't see it. And so, of course, then you don't talk about it. But it's become clear to me over the years that that is not what is necessary. As, as it's actually person, offensive. It's offensive. And one, one of my classmates at, at business school, uh, African-American classmates, taught me this, that if he doesn't get to talk about it, there's a huge part of him he just leaves behind. That he... 
is just hiding a whole section of himself. Whereas in, you know, the, the position of what feels in life, I don't, we don't see color, we don't see race, we're moving past it. Yes, but that means so much of his experience isn't, isn't uh, able to be there. Do you relate to that? Does that feel right to you? Do you? Absolutely. We, we have to embrace our uniqueness, not marginalize it or make it invisible. Because if you marginalize it, you make it invisible, it only accelerates the problem. That there are so many of us that who cannot and shouldn't conform to a standard. And because we cannot conform to a standard of how we look and how we, we emote, therefore, we will act like it's not fair. Right? I remember having a really good set of interns from Harvard Law School, maybe seven years ago, a project I was running. And there was one young lady who grew up in New York, smart, genius, great personality. Another young lady who grew up in Atlanta. And they went to different undergrad schools. And a young lady from Atlanta, African-American, she went to a historically black college. And she loved her experience. A young lady who grew up in New York, white, and she asked the question, she says, we're both at Harvard Law School. Why, why do we still need uh, historically black colleges. I thought we wanted to do away with segregation. I can remember Erica saying, here's the difference. When I'm on that campus, when I was on campus, I had the ability to be free. Hmm. I can be who I was. I didn't have to justify my existence. And I could explore and I can learn and I can excel. But once I got to Harvard Law School, I had to be guarded. I had to justify and I had to explain. Hmm. I had to explain that I wasn't here on any type of special program. I was just as smart as everybody's in class. In fact, I had one of the highest LSAT scores to qualify me to get in. I had to justify anytime I would speak in class why I took the approach that I took. And I had to re-emphasize my analysis. And then I had to explain why my community operated particular ways. She said, do you know how much extra energy that is? I couldn't be just a regular law student exploring and loving learning. I had to always be on guard to do those things. You're describing an extra tax on every interaction when she's at Harvard law school compared to her undergraduate experience where a, a percentage, I don't know what the percentage is, but it feels like quite a high percentage of extra work always to fit into a system that maybe for her white classmates, they just, it's natural. It, it feels easy. It feels that part is effortless, but for her, it's constant effort to fit in, to explain, to make interactions acceptable and okay. What do you think the percentage tax is, either for her, but maybe you can't speak for her, just generally for someone, for you? Uh, oh, it, it's, it's, it's 100% taxation. I mean, me, my experience at law school is very similar. I, I'm sitting in class, cr criminal law class. There was a particular uh, a class that was being discussed, a professor, former prosecutor, and I'm listening to this case. I don't remember the style of the case, but it was talking about state of mind, men's ray. 
And the case I was familiar with, and as she was explaining, I was like, that doesn't sound right. So I kept raising my hand up. I say, but is this this? Is this that? I didn't know because I was raising a question, and it was a case about Hugh P. Newton and this former prosecutor, criminal law professor. Didn't know all of that. I'm just having a discourse in this class, which was natural for me to do in my undergrad, but in this particular context, because I am one of eight African-Americans in a class of 120 people, and that every time I asked a question, it was seen as offensive and racialized when I was simply asking questions about the case. And I can recall distinctly, there was two African-American professors and one African-American dean. And one of the professors after class, it was no more than two hours, see me in the hallway, say, I need to see you now. And took me to the African-American dean class, said, what happened in this class? So what are you talking about? So I started explaining. They both say, you are never to speak in that class again. After the semester, we would do your schedule for you. Your job is to learn and graduate from law school. Your job is not to try to get people to see your point of view. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, well, he said, no, your job is simply understand and get out of it. That was the lowest grade I got in law school. Hmm. What that story means to you is that you needed to play the game a certain way. But you're not just saying a certain way. You're saying you felt that you had to play that game differently than the other students in the class. I couldn't have an opinion. I had to be invisible. You had to be invisible. I had to be invisible because when I walked in the door, there was already a certain perspective. And every time I talked, it only cemented a, a, a conscious or unconscious bias in a way in which impacted my ability to really engage in that class. I want to push on this. So I want to understand something. The, uh, when I went to graduate school, there was an unspoken rule that in a class of 60 people, you could only make one comment per class, because if you made two or three or five comments, that was taking time from somebody else in the room. That's and I remember right. After a year or so of this, we had some students from elsewhere on campus join us, and one of them made five, six comments in one class. And the rest of us, I mean, we never talked about it openly, but we all were just like, what is this person thinking? What are they doing? They were oh violating the rule. You know, we're like, what? You, you know, that's not how it's done. And yet, no one had explained that to them. They, now, that to me, well, it wasn't a racial issue because there was no racial difference in that moment. So help me understand for you, I'm certainly not trying to be rude in asking this question, how do you know it's racial in that setting? What was it about it that you went, no, I know that's racial. I'm not saying it wasn't. I just want to understand how to know the difference. Is it who pulled you aside and they're the ones that are explaining it? Help me understand. Two things. One, in law school, it's a Socratic method. No yeah. one volunteers to rush the talk because you become the target. Two, but when you're called on, you have to be prepared and be able to do what you do. But three, why would a professor who was not in my class know about it unless it was being expressed in the lounge with the other professors and she happened to overhear it? 
And when she overheard it, they didn't realize she was in the room. And when they realized she was in the room, she exited and found me to say, we got a problem. Because it was those professors who understood the nature of being an African-American student in that environment, what it meant. And they had, for all of us, been the place we go to so they can help coach us through that environment. You're saying that, I think what you're saying is based upon your own experience in the past, based upon this professor's experience, they're just, it's not that other people don't have to also be careful about what to say in the class, but on top of that, there was something extra. On top of that, there was something that, that just exists and you're familiar with it in, you know, in many circumstances in your life. Yes. You're not saying no one else has to be careful about how many times to speak. Or, oh, no, but, no. but you're saying that plus X percent is your plus. Right. Plus. So you take for those, the, uh, the professor who pulled me to the side, they knew this professor's track record. Mm. Right. They knew the track record. They knew the language and the codes. And I was in there and they knew the other professor's track record. So they say, we would do your schedule from now on to make sure you take the right professors. Oh, that's, to me, that is an amazing additional factor that they are saying there are some places that you won't know that do hold a bias, a presumption against you that you won't be aware of, and it will affect your ability to get through here. And we're Absolutely. Gonna you, we're going to help you get through that. Absolutely. I've, I've, had, I've had that all my career. When I'm in a mixed-race environment as an African-American man, we get it all the time. So you always have to be careful, especially when you're showing up in a posture where others have control over the situation. Give, give me an example of that. Help breathe life into that. So uh, uh, high school reality, right? I grew up in Detroit. I remember uh, one of my, my English professor, Mr. Morassi. I can call his name, Mr. Morassi. Mr. Morassi was notorious for flunking all of African-American males in the class. Hmm. And he typically will flunk you your uh, senior year. Hmm. But he was one of two teachers in speech. And so, of course, Miss Kelly class, it booked up really fast. And so if you pull the short deal, you're in Miss Morassi's class. Hmm. And sure enough, that first semester, Mr. Morassi, not because of my performance, he will have this rule that if you are a second late from the bell, you're tardy. If you get seven tardies, you're absent. If you get three absences, you flunk automatically. Hmm. I'm a 12th grader. I'm silly. I'm having a ball. I'm immature. So I will always get there a minute after the bell. I had excellent grace in the class. and It was always teetering. But there were two teachers at the school who created a fail-safe for us to graduate because they seen this pattern over and over and over. Mm. So they would create uh, an elective class that can go in, in place of the speech in the spring semester. Because mm -hmm. they don't want somebody not graduating from high school because they have 
X number of toddies in one class. That's not a great outcome for a high school experience and, and for someone's potential in the future. No, they were in fear of, for some people, if you didn't graduate that year, it was a high dropout rate. Right. They knew the track record of this particular teacher and it was targeted at African-American males because there were others who were slightly tardy, but they didn't get the same penalty. Yes, I hear you. All right. Ms. Brown and Ms. Smith, one was a conference teacher, they created a business English class for that very reason. Hmm. So the next semester I'm in business English and all of my friends are in business English. All of us had Mr. Barassi's speech class, not the same class, different class. And, and I remember Ms. Brown towards the end of the semester says, I got to do this class every year because of the same problem. They've created mm -hmm. an additional class in order to avoid this situation. In, in that situation, does it feel to you that that teacher, I think it does, I think that's what you're saying, was deliberately biased in saying this way, this is a way for me to kind of keep someone back? Is it as strong as that? You, no, it doesn't have to be as strong as that. It's just, it's the just- impact. That's right. It's the impact, right? So is it conscious or something? You know, I, I'm not here to say what it was. Right. I do know the impact was the same. So I said, well, you should have got there on time. I probably should have. I'm immature. I'm a 12th grade. I'm having a ball. In my neighborhood growing up, when it, there was one week I got pulled over by the police every day, seven straight days. Really? By the same two officers. Really? Who was notorious in the neighborhood of doing all type of stuff that police officers should be doing. Like what? Eventually, they, pu they pull you over, they pat you down, and you have what they call excessive money in your pocket. They take the money and say you're a drug dealer. They wouldn't arrest you. They just take the money. Mm. If, they, if you was anywhere near where drugs being transacted and they arrest people, you could get arrested whether you had anything to do with it or not. When you got pulled over those seven times, right? That's what you're saying, right? Every, every day. Seven times. Seven times in a week. I mean, first of all, I just want to pause on that because uh, I, the only times I've ever been pulled over is for speeding. I mean, I can't think of any other time in my whole life. So, but you're saying you were pulled over. Were you driving at the time? No, you're just walking along. They just. I'm driving. I'm you're driving. driving. So they pull yep. you over. Were you speeding? You're not speeding. Never ticket, never anything. They pull you over. Suspicious they, car. They say you got a suspicious car. You have to get out. You get out, hands on oh, the hood. Hands on the look hood. Through the car. Your hands are on the hood in this moment. I mean, I know we've all heard this, but I just talking through it, it's more personal when we're just talking about you and I. And there, it, it, your hands are on the hood, and you, you feel what in this moment? I mean, even the first time it happens, you feel what? The first time it happened, it was funny. It was with one of my closest friends who was in a car. He was in the police academy. Hmm. <laughs> He literally had just been accepted to the police academy, maybe two weeks from graduating. He had his, his uh, academy badge and gun. And when they pat us down, it's a gun. He said, I'm in the academy. I'm in the academy. And it's like everything tensed up. And, and we looked at each other. We just shook our head. And then they questioned whether or not he was really in the academy by asking him questions, right? Fine. Next time, I may have been coming off the freeway to see my car pulled over again. Same thing. The last time, I'm literally pulling up in front of my house, and they jump out, and my mother come out and say, you've pulled them over seven times. What are you looking for? 
They didn't bother me anymore after that. Mm. In the same neighborhood, the other patrolmen we knew, two of which grew up in the neighborhood, the uh, the lieutenant over the division, we mentioned it to them, but Benny Napoleon Pullers over or uh, Officer Dunlap, who we grew up with, or Junior Hawkins, they see us, they're waving. Mm. If we are playing basketball, they may come out and talk or shoot the ball. But if these two officers did it, pull up to the basketball court, people just run because you didn't want to have to deal with them. What's ironic is there was a gentleman in Detroit killed, Malice Green, by these two officers, and that's how they finally was taken off the force because they killed right? somebody. That's that tax, right? Tax. On a street in Detroit Tireman, which is the dividing line between Detroit and Dearborn, Michigan, it literally is a three-lane street. On one side of the street, Detroit, the insurance on your property and your car is over double. You cross right across the street, same quality house, same build of a house. You charge less in both car insurance Car insurance almost triple, house insurance double than that. That's a literal tax. Yeah, that's right. But, but let me just come back to this description of this week, pulled over seven times. Even the fact that you would know the names of the officers and know that there's a couple to be careful of is a foreign experience to me. I, I cannot tell you the name of any officer ever. I, I, can't, I just don't know any. I've not needed to know any. You know, you don't have to be careful of these people because there's, there can be trouble. It's just, it's just, it's an interesting example of how, for me, that tax doesn't exist. I have to think about that. Never had to think about that. For you, it's a normal, everyday reality to know their names, which ones you're going to feel safe with, which ones you do not feel safe with, which ones feel out to target you. To be pulled over seven times in a week, I mean, what do you feel at the end of that week? Help me put an emotion to that. You know, it, it, if you grew up in that environment, some of this to be expected. You know it's not normal. You're frustrated. You watched it all your life in this neighborhood, how this type of policing is carried out. You watch it mature in some areas and that down in other areas. Uh, with the times, because it was city of Detroit, so you began to see the composition of police officers shift from majority white police officers to majority black police officers. Many of those officers now coming from your neighborhood, so you begin to see the shift. But you are always aware of the legacy police officers who've had this problem. That when you begin to have the requirement that police officers must live in the city, there's a different type of relationship. Because now you have officers who come from the neighborhood, they know the people, they care about the outcome, they care about keeping people safe, they know who the good and bad guys or situations are, and they can help mediate when necessary, as opposed to someone who are not from the community, never lived in the community, don't care, it becomes a police predatory state. Well, and, and the word that comes to mind as you're describing this really is trust. It, yeah. If there's two-way trust, everything becomes easier. You're willing to share information. You say, hey, there's trouble going down on, in, in this area. You might want to check that out. There's, there's a, you believe these people are here to help you. It's community policing versus after-the-fact reactive, what you're describing predatorial policing 
law enforcement. It's a different mindset. I have a, a friend who's a police uh, chief up in Canada, or he was for, for many years, and he started mm-hmm. a positive tickets movement where he would, he was so fed up with the norms of policing where he was that he said, you know, it's always reactive. It's always after the fact. He was with a, a community of the indigenous uh, youth, and he was doing a presentation, and he's there in his police you know, uniform, and he says, well, who am I? You know what? And they said, oh, well, we know who you are. You're someone who hides in the bushes and takes our mothers and fathers away. This is who yep. you are. And in this moment, he goes, okay, well, this has all got to change. It's not a little more efficient in the current system. This whole thing has to be turned on its head so that they recognize I'm here to help them, to keep safety. And he began a focus where he called it the end of crime. So it's not after the fact, it's before the fact. It's trying to build trust, it's build relationships. And they had these positive tickets. They would catch youth doing the right thing. And that might be free pizza at the local wherever. And you had to come to the police you know, offices in order to get that coupon. And the whole point was to build trust so that you're not only ever suspicious of the person in the uniform. And, and I just, they reduced recidivism rates from about 60% down to about 8%. They cut youth crime in half and overall crime, they cut by 40% in this alternative approach. I just spoke to him recently and, and again, he's like, look, it really works. But he said right now, he said in the United States, there's a messaging around these alternative approaches to policing that's like, oh, that's just being soft. That doesn't work. And it's like, it does work. And he wanted, he was quite on fire about this. You know, if your friend is in Canada and he felt that way, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, Detroit is right across the bridge from Windsor. We should go to Windsor. You can feel the difference when we in Windsor compared to Detroit at certain times. Yes. You know, community policing, it has value. Also, making sure police officers are not serving as social workers and mental health counselors and all kinds of stuff that they should not be serving. And something happened. Yeah, they're not trained for, nor should they be budgeted to do that. The defunding of essential services to support communities and households that are in trauma, the defunding of the mental health uh, uh, providers created unnecessary tensions on law enforcement agencies. One of the most dangerous calls that a police officer can make is a domestic call. Yeah. Because it's so much emotion. That's right. It's volatile when many domestic calls could have been mitigated on the front end if you have well-placed social workers and other services to address some of the underlying issues that will create the domestic uh, issue in the first place. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me that you don't really want to introduce armed personnel into a highly charged emotional conflict. That makes sense to me. I mean, I'm, and it's not, it's not, I'm not knocking the police and making that observation. I'm just saying if I'm having a big argument with anybody, if my wife and I were getting into an argument and then somebody just came along and they happened to have guns in their pocket, it's just not a great idea. You just you don't do you, it. You don't want it's guns in the middle of what already feels well is emotional and, and, and when, when, out of control. That's right. Because when emotions are on the table, logic is out the door. Yeah. 
there is no logic in the door. So you have to have someone who can address emotional situations so you can de-escalate, yeah. not escalate. Uh, and, and many in law enforcement will tell you the same thing, that if there's a 911 call, why shouldn't there be a trained professionals to address these issues as opposed to police officers? And many of them, they hate going to domestic calls. There's been a spike in crime in many areas because of the pandemic. Right. And 90% of those who have been engaged, they know each other. As family, as friends who are sitting in the midst of anxiety and trauma and economic stress because of the current realities. We need to be escalating support for social workers and mental health counselors in this moment because that's what's needed. There's anxiety, not law enforcement. Yeah, both sides are being set up to fail in that scenario. You take somebody who is well-trained as a police officer, they're not coming in with bias, but they're just being put in situations that isn't their core competency. You know, you don't, when you need a lawyer, you don't need a doctor on coming in in that moment. You know, you need people trained for that particular challenge. And, and it makes yeah. perfect sense what, what you're describing. And, and, and think of it this way. And then you take some in law enforcement, wonderful people, they're committed, who served in the military and they leave from battle and now they're in law enforcement and they've never been properly supported for mental health counseling and they're suffering from post-traumatic stress, diagnosed or undiagnosed. Now you put them in these emotionally charged scenarios. They're not only trained to deal with the the scenario, they have not even been supported to, to, to mitigate and navigate their own emotional state. One of the things Ward Clapham, this uh, this police chief, learned as he was doing his own research and his own journey to enlightenment, I suppose, is he is he realized that that originally when policing began in, in in Great Britain, it was peace. It was a peace officer. It was somebody yes. who was there in the community, known. I, I love this point about you living in the community. You know the people. They know you. You understand the dynamics that are are normal and what things are not, which things are dangerous and which things are not. And he said it's shifted from there to being law enforcement, which is a different intent. It's a different goal. What you, I think, are adding to that is where if you're not careful, it becomes not just law enforcement, it's the militarization. Yes. And if you take on a military mindset, you could be very efficient work really hard in your job, but you're going to still see the people you're supposed to be serving too often as the enemy yeah. and, and, and see them in a way, well, the biblical term, through a glass darkly, but you're not seeing it. The people that you're supposed to be protecting, clearly you're seeing everybody as threat. I, there's a situation recently, I'm sure you saw it, but and I don't know all the context, and, and, and that does really matter. This was social media. I just saw the video, but there was three young men, African-American men, a homeless man had been sort of coming at them, I think, with a knife. And so 911 was called. The police arrived. Did you see this? And, uh, and, and that the guns are out, and these boys are all, you know, they're all arrested. They're, yeah. they're calling 911 for help. Now, help us with that additional context. You familiar with the story? 
I'm familiar with the story, but that's the reality that I'm, I'm speaking of growing up in, right? You're saying there's nothing Someone, surprising about that story to you? Sadly, no. That you actually have someone to call because there was another set of boys creating problems against this set of boys who really had, they didn't do anything. When the police get there, guns are on, everybody's pleading. It's like, hey, they're not, they, they're, they're okay. They didn't do anything. The manager come out and say, I'm the one that called, not them. They're okay. And it seems as if the law enforcement officers, they could not get out their mind that they needed to react with extreme aggression. That is the reality far too many communities live in. Law enforcement agencies with officers who respond with extreme aggression, even when aggression is not needed. This idea of extreme aggression, uh, it feels that it's named something and one of the things it names is what I just observed broadly in culture right now, in our society. We have this, I am concerned myself, I'm sure you must be, at the tone of the discord. Mm-hmm. There was a, um, uh, one of my friends, one of my author friends posted on social media responding to an article that was basically saying, violent protest. There's a role for violent protest. You need to embrace violent protest. And they responded saying, no, 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 please no. What we don't need is violent protest in the midst of this. I'm interested in your response to that. But what I, I supported it. I was saying, well, yes, you know, we, we need, you know, we, 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 we want to see uh, Martin Luther King now, you know, we need this kind of leadership. And the reaction was really negative, both to her comment and to mine. People so angry, and I'm only giving you one tiny example, but I just see examples across the board of of such readiness for for a fight, so, so ready to misjudge each other. To and 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 I, I worry about this because conflict begets conflict, and so the more this is the dialogue, the harder it is to solve problems. The harder it is to find some middle ground where you can try and come up with better and more creative solutions. Your thoughts on this, this just tendency towards aggressive communication? If you think about images that we see on television and news, it's all about aggression. Breaking story all day, it's the same story. Mm. And some shock value, and we're looking to do that. Mm. We have to reprogram our responses and our communications around issues. Uh, some of that has been generated with what we consume on the media. Some of that has been generated uh, based on how we perceive people perceive our perception of the perception. <laughs> you know, right. at some point there has to be uh, a smart approach to de-escalate all of the pent up aggression and emotional feelings. And in many ways, it's because people feel that un- unease about their future outlook. You know, yeah. If you don't have any hope, if you don't, then then you, you you're going to feel like you have fewer options. Actually, there's some research I just was reading about. There's Barbara Fredrickson. It's called the Broaden and Build Theory, and basically she's saying when you have negative emotion, your options are reduced. You know, and we've heard yeah. this bike flight, you know, or freeze. And if you can have positive emotions, then all your options increase. You have a sense of possibility, and you can be creative with other people. And and I just think a lot of what we're talking about is, is, you know, 
whether it's policing, whether it's the the unseen tax of being African American in America today, uh, these things helped precious someone, helped that precious someone who's African American to feel like they have fewer options. You know, to Absolutely. feel like they have to be in a fight, flight, or freeze mode. Your literal example of the when those two police officers come up, you run. You haven't done done anything wrong. You're just playing basketball. You're not doing. But you see them, you go, "Well, I only got three options. I got to fight, you know, flight or freeze." And so it reproduces exactly the type of problem. It, it escalates exactly the problem. Well, those police officers, they've got their judgments, their prejudice, perhaps in this situation, and they see them running. Well, see, ever they're guilty, you know. And it recreates yeah. and reinforces this cycle. And it, it, it's so sad. Of course, we need to be part of the solution on this other side. How do we create positive emotion? Even this conversation, as small as it is, is a step in that direction. Yeah, we yeah. can have a dialogue so that we can be part of the solution. And, and that's really what I want you to speak to now. We've, I've already introduced this earlier about being a solution in my own family. But what can I do? What can people listening to this do to help be part of the solution? Uh, if, if they say, oh, we, we, we want to support the, the NAACP, and I don't just mean financially, I mean they want to be part of it. Can they be part of it? How do they be part of it? How can they be part of this conversation? Well, first of all, NAACP, uh, anyone can join. Uh, uh, NAACP.org. Membership uh, is relatively inexpensive. We have units in 47 of the 50 states across the country. We have always been interracial. In our approach, uh, membership base is volunteer and our local leaders define the agenda of the association. So we love more voices at the table. And by uh, the way, I, I'll admit my ignorance. I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't not know it. I didn't think, oh, maybe you cannot be a member. But I wouldn't have really known that I could go and join the NAACP without you having said Oh, we have members of probably every racial background you could think of. It was so funny. I would have to speak at a conference in Hawaii, poor me, right? <laughs> and when I get there, uh, of course I have a, I, we have you know members in Hawaii and I say, hey, our, our branch wanna have a reception, great. Get there, it's a soul food restaurant, like a soul food restaurant in Hawaii. <laughs> but there we had, it was based on individuals who had been in the military. Mm. So there was from all across the country, you know, mostly black, but we had uh, Filipino members there. We had white members. We had members of different Asian backgrounds. Uh, Alaska, the same reality. Uh, you know, the chair of our legal redress was an older white guy who had uh, migrated to Alaska years ago, and uh, it was it was fascinating. So mm -hmm. you know, we just we we have we can't discriminate and then say we're fighting against discrimination. Yeah, that's right. I, I hear yeah. you. And so that's one thing that, that people can do. They can actually sign up as members of and be, participate in the NAACP themselves. Good. Thank you. More. Yeah. What else can we do? Uh, you know, this election cycle, let's be clear, elections have consequences. And we're targeting areas where we have to turn out the vote in ways in which we walk in there with a value proposition. It's one thing to have protesters in the street, peaceful protesters. It's cute. It's beautiful. And it's necessary, but it's not sufficient for change. And it's the bridge that can allow us to get the change. So now we have to move from protests, peaceful protests in the street, 
to power the ballot box to make sure Rep- representation. That's what you're describing. That's right. Well, and making sure that the value proposition that many people are chanting about in the streets are realized at the ballot box with a set of policymakers that also have that value proposition so we can get to public policy implementation. That's where change happens. Uh, then finally, these type of dialogues, open up honest dialogues, and, and unfortunately it can and will be uncomfortable if they're really honest dialogues because change isn't easy, change isn't comfortable, but change is necessary if you want to get to where from where we are to a place to where we should be. I, I am so grateful for your time. Thank you for the dialogue. Thank you for taking time. I hope that we can stay in touch. I, I, I'm just, I'm grateful for this essential conversation. Yeah, we'll, we'll love to do it again. Just let me know however so you want to do it. It is wonderful. Thank you. And I appreciate your, right. your flexibility. Thank yeah. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you sincerely for listening. And if you like this conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a review and a comment to help other people find us. Email me at essentialism.com if you have questions you would like me to answer in a future episode. Uh, Soon here we will have an episode specifically, a sort of ask me anything episode. If you have questions you'd like me to address Uh, please email me at essentialism.com so I can consider it. Uh, If you want to join our community, follow us on social media at Gregory McEwen and at Essentialism Podcast. Again, I really am genuinely grateful to you for listening. Uh, Remember, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will.